Well, go ahead and grab your Bibles. John chapter 4. John 4. We are working our way uh, through the miracles of, of Jesus. Um, Matthew's gospel in the morning, John's gospel in the evening. And uh, there are not as many um, uh, miracles in John's gospel. Um, by March, we're going to um, be participating in our discipleship thing. But um, there are seven major miracles. And you remember that the word that he uses is signs. So you won't find the word miracles in the Gospel of John. John chapter 4, we want to go down to verse 46. So if you will, stand with me out of reverence to God's Word. We'll go to uh, the end of the chapter. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovered. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour... The fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live, and he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Let's go to morning in prayer. Our Father, we ask as always to open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands, and our feet, that we will go in obedience to Christ. Uh, may we be faithful to your word and faithful to our calling. And may we have the faith of such a man as this. May I decrease so that you can increase. In your son we pray. Amen. I, I suspect if reading through this, you're, you're thinking to yourself, Self, this sounds familiar. I think we've read this before. And that is one of the risks of, of looking at the miracles of Jesus from a variety of Gospels is, is the overlap, right? Um, it sounds, this story sounds exactly like the healing of the centurion servant. Remember that in Matthew chapter 8, uh, Jesus is, uh, after he cleanses the leper, a uh, Gentile centurion, uh, who's a Roman soldier, leader of a hundred, comes to Jesus and says, you know, my boy slave is, is sick, will you heal him? And he, he, he wants to grab Jesus by the arm, uh, bring him all the way back home to heal him. And Jesus says, no, don't worry about it. Um, your boy's healed, and he marveled at the man's faith. And then you read this story, and it reads almost exactly the same. After all, you, you have a story where a soldier-like figure comes, and Jesus heals from a distance. However, I do agree with those scholars, and I think most are in agreement here, that these are not the same story. There's, there's a number of reasons for this. No, no reason really to get into all of them. This is a royal official, which means he will be part of Herod's army. Uh, as opposed to a Roman centurion. Um, this man is likely a Jew rather than a Gentile or Samaritan, like the Roman centurion was. Uh, in Matthew, a slave is ill. In John, a son is ill. Uh, in Matthew, Jesus performs the healing in Capernaum, whereas in John, it is in Cana, right, and so on and so forth. So you could find enough differences to, to, to suggest that these are two distinct events. However, with that said, this is this a little nugget. You can put it in your back pocket, do with it whatever you want. Um, I do think John does this on purpose. If I ever got a PhD in New Testament studies, which you ain't got to worry about that ever happening, 
Um, I think my dissertation would be on on uh, this subject, and that is uh, John's audience. Um, I think they already had one of the four, go- one of the three other gospels in their possession. If I had to guess, I would guess Mark. But uh, and the reason we reason I think that among a host of others is John seems to make assumptions. Either he can skip details that you already know, Judas kissing Jesus and betrayals, not in John. The, uh, the Lord's Supper, not in John, but the uh, upper room discourse is. There's little details like that. And also John seems to put events we know of in different locations. For example, in John chapter 2, Jesus cleanses the temple. In the synoptics, that event takes place at the end of Jesus' ministry, not the beginning. So either there were two distinct events, or John purposely put it out of order for uh, his own theological narrative reasons. I think this may be an example of that. I think perhaps his readers were aware of a similar story, but typical with John, he takes a story that they would have been familiar with, feeding the 5,000, for example, in John 6, and he takes it a whole nother direction. With that said, what do we do with this story here? All of that is free, and you could do with it whatever you want. We see a couple of things about the man that Jesus heals here. The first thing we see is the humility of faith. Now, immediately you see there, verse 46, uh, we are given the setting of this sign, the second sign, right? It's the same setting as the first. In fact, it says he came again to Cana. Remember, that's where the, he turned water into wine. Uh, that is in Galilee. And then there it is, where he turned water to wine, right? So, so it's clear John wants us, we'll come back to this. John wants the, the reader to say, don't forget this detail. It's not just that he's in Cana, and maybe the reader will remember this. But rather, he came back to Cana. And dear reader, I hope you remembered that is where he turned water into wine. So both the first and the second sign in John's gospel take place in the same city. I don't think that is an accident, right? Um, uh, now, between here, there likely was other miracles. I, I think whenever we read first sign, second sign, whatnot in John's gospel, that we are not to read that as if these were the only miracles Jesus did in his ministry, Rather, John is wanting us to say, okay, I've got the first sign. This is pointing me to something. We've come to the second sign. It's pointing me to something, right? And the third, the fourth, the fifth, and the sixth, and finally the, the seventh, right? So, so it's not that he's not doing other miracles. It's that John is highlighting what he's highlighting so that in the end we can see Jesus is the Son of God and have faith in his name. Well, regardless, he, he's in Cana, and uh, a royal official comes to him whose son is ill. Again, this is different from the centurion servant. This man works for Herod, who was a sort of king, or at least he thought he was a king. Uh, thus, he, he is, again, likely a Jew. Now, remember, the Jews are the ones always looking for a sign. In fact, Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 1. Greeks look for wisdom, Jews a sign. Now, that word sign should stick out to the reader, right? Because the word sign in John's gospel means miracle. To the Jew, what they're looking for is probably cosmic signs. Remember, when the Messiah comes, the, 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 the sun or the moon will turn to blood, the, the, the sun will melt, and the stars will fall to the sky. You know, cosmic signs, right? That's sort of what they have in mind. It's cute that blind people can see. I mean, anyone could do that, of course, but really make the heavens shape, right? And so, so they're always looking for a sign. Regardless, verse 47, it says, The man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, He went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son. He was at the point of death. No no wonder, right, he he was uh, 
you know, when he heard that Jesus was nearby, he was eager to find him out, right? Uh, I, I remember whenever we had to take one of our kids to the emergency room, um, it was since we've, we moved here to, to Frankfurt, and um, I remember uh, holding our child and going into the emergency room and says, we got an emergency, we need to see a doctor now. Oh, apparently I don't do this very often. I thought there's always a doctor just sort of, because that's what happens in, in the shows and movies, right? There's a doctor that they have nothing else to do, I guess, and they're just waiting for someone to come in and saying, hey, I need a doctor. Stat, right? And then they would just rush in there with, the, with, with you know, everything they need and, and give them the IVs and whatever else you know, doctors do. Well, that was not the case. What I got was, here, go in the waiting room. We'll call you when we're ready. Like, if I wanted to wait, we would have called my doctor. If I really wanted to wait, we would have called my insurance company, right? <laughs> right, state workers? But, but, but no, I came to the emergency room because it's an emergency, and I want you to treat it like an emergency. So I got a bit testy. Old McDaniel uh, temper was, was coming out. Like, look, I, look here, lady. That's, you shouldn't start a sentence that way. I will fill out any paperwork you want. Get her to a room stat. You have to use the word stat because they don't know what the word now means. So, so stat, do it stat, like right stat, okay? I didn't like that, right? Now, we, we didn't have to wait very long and everything worked out uh, in the end. Um, but this man, he is very much in the same situation, right? He, he realizes that the doctors have said there's nothing else we can do. That isn't a good enough answer for him. So he is going to, to find Jesus and, 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 and do whatever it takes. And so he's saying, Jesus, I need you to hurry before it's too late. Come and heal my boy. And that is where the humility is. Here what it is that we have is a royal official approaching a peasant for help. Don't miss the socioeconomics of this scene. Jesus is a nobody. The carpenter's kid from Redneckville. Right? He's, he's, he's a nobody. He's walking around, has, has no place to, to lay his head. We, we, we saw in Matthew chapter 8. He's a nobody. This guy at least has a title. He works for the king. I mean, we do that now, right? If, if, if someone says they work for the president or a CEO or the governor or something like that, we associate prominence to that position because of its association with someone of, of, of prominence, right? So to, to be a royal official, to work for King Herod, would mean that you are a person of some prominence. Who does Jesus work for? Nobody. He's, he's such a bad carpenter, the rumor is, he's not even doing it anymore. He became a preacher. You've got to be a bad carpenter to become a preacher, uh, or so I've heard, right? Um, but you can imagine him seeing Jesus from a distance, two men from different worlds in class, and he's running to him as a beggar. To quote Michael Scott, my, how the turntables... But here's a man who has no hope but Jesus, no plan but Jesus. If Jesus says no, he loses his son. If Jesus says yes, yes, his, his son will live. He has nothing to bring to the table but that of a humbled faith. I do want us to pause for a minute and consider what our prayer life is like, or just our Christian life in general. Do we exemplify an entitled faith or a humbled faith? Too often, Christians think their faith resume, resume makes them entitled. I've been going to church for a long time. I've got saved at vacation Bible school for like three years in a row. I'm a good person. What God demands is not our CV. What he demands is our humility. He wants us to come to him as a mere beggar. This is a humbled faith. 
For he doesn't see Jesus low on the socioeconomic table. He sees Jesus for who he really is. And remember, that's the point of John's gospel, that you too see Jesus for who he really is. So we see a humbled faith, and we also see the persistence of faith, verses 48 and 49. Remember that a fickle faith is no faith at all. If, if your approach to Christianity is, he loves me, he loves me not. He hears my prayers, he hears my prayers not, right? A fickle sort of faith. I'm on fire for Jesus because it's youth camp. I'm not on fire for Jesus because it's dead of the winter, right? That is, that is not faith at all. The Bible consistently praises persistent and persevering faith. You remember the Jews in the wilderness. Shortly after being liberated from the mighty Egyptians, they began complaining because it was taking too long for them to get to the promised land. Right? It's, 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 it's a very prominent story. And, and, and what we see then was that much of their faith was rooted in rhetoric, not in reality. Right? Because God hasn't changed. Whether you're in Egypt as slaves, the wilderness as wanderers, or in the promised land as citizens, God himself hasn't changed. But we often allow our circumstances to convince us that God has changed. I haven't, right? I've been perfect all along. So too, we have faith in the promises of Jesus. We struggle with the process of faith. Sometimes the process of faith takes us through valleys of death. Sometimes it involves years of wandering. But the official demonstrates his persistent faith in at least two ways here. The first of all, the distance here. Again, uh, he, he, is, he is coming from um, Capernaum to Cana. Now that is about 25 miles. So I got on the Google Earth, not to sound like a millennial. I'm trying to figure out how far is 25 miles. Well, 25 miles is roughly from right where we are right here, roughly to the Oyenton McDonald's, right? Yeah, so, so it's, a, it's a marathon away from here to there. So if you're looking uh, for the ice cream machine to be broken, and, and, but to still get your dollar a Coca-Cola with no ice, in, in 25 miles, you, you can get there from there. Uh, 25 miles is roughly from right here, East Frankfurt, to Georgetown Airport. And I know what you're thinking. Georgetown has an airport? does. You should Google that. It is also 25 miles. I have nothing else out of that. And this one I did for you to show you how much I love you. Um, it's from here to Kroger Field, roughly. I don't know why you'd ever go there. Um, anyways, 25 miles. Now think about it. How far would you go and be willing to go to find a doctor to heal someone you love, especially if their, uh, if their disease and illness is life-threatening? Uh, all of us have said or been told, don't worry about the cost, honey. We will figure it out, right? We'll work with insurance companies, charities, doctors, specialists, a GoFundMe page, uh, a, 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 a coin jar over at our favorite restaurant with our child's picture on it, whatever it takes, right? There is no limitation to what we will do for a loved one to find healing. And when you think about it that way, 25 miles is not that far. For one, you could do that in 20 minutes, Right? I mean, uh, barring no combines on 127 when you cross the county line, right? Assuming you don't come across that or hit a deer, that is a very real possibility. We can make it there 20, 30 minutes, no, no problem at all. But remember, at this time in the Roman world, 
you would have walked most of that. Um, but at the same time, I do think about that 25 miles. Let's be honest. On paper, it's not that far. But if you got home tonight, get home from church, take your shoes off, ready to try to figure out how it is possible that Arsenal couldn't beat Burnley today. Right, you know, the important things. And then you realized, oh, I got to get something for the car. And Walmart's the only thing open I can get it from. They're like, I got to go all the way over to the west side of Walmart. Ugh. In fact, this past Friday or Saturday, whatever it was, we went to Walmart, right? I haven't been there months. And I thought I got everything I needed. We get in the car. We're leaving. We got to go pick up our son at a at, at, at place. And Manny goes, oh, by the way, did you remember to get X, Y, or Z for the car? I thought, oh. She goes, well, do we still have time to go back? No, and we ain't going to, right? I am 10 feet from Walmart, and I don't want to go, right? I mean, I mean, we have gotten spoiled over here, I think. But if you really believed that, that the only answer to your problems was Jesus, you'll go to whatever ends it is to find him. And the language is, he heard that he's come from Judea to Galilee. Not only can, can, you, can you reach him, but he's somewhat near. He's here in Galilee. He's here in, in Herod's country. And so, so he, he seeks him out. And in that context... 25 miles doesn't sound too, too far at all. So we see him in, in his persistence in the distance he would travel, but also his response. Notice what it is there. Verse uh, 48, Jesus said um, to him, unless y'all, that's plural, the you there. So for us Southerners, that'd be y'all. If you're from Pennsylvania, it's you-ins, right? Unless y'all, so not just the man, but, but he becomes a, a proxy for everyone. Unless y'all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, again, he's not just picking on the man, though he is picking on the royal official, right? Whenever I coach and, and, and I see a player do something, right, what I'll do is I'll stop practice, and that player will feel like I am picking on them, but I'm picking on the whole team. What I'll say something is, is like, I just saw something that all you all do. Now, I'm picking on Bob over here because Bob just did it, and I've had enough of it. But all y'all do it. So even though I may blame everyone, that one player feels like they're the center of attention, right? You know? And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's being asked to, to perform a miracle, a sign. Jesus pauses and says, all right, everybody come in here. We need to have, have a group chat here, right? Why is it you all insist on seeing the fantastical in order to believe I am the Son of God? Now, again, this criticism of the Jewish people was common from Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament. Matthew 12, Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given them except for Jonah. Matthew 16, An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. Mark 8, Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Luke 11, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. And I referenced 1 Corinthians 1.22 earlier. Jews demand signs, Greek seek wisdom. But notice here Jesus says this again. If I had a nickel for every time someone came asking for a sign the red jar back here would win and we'd have a red out in this church, right? That's a lot of nickels he'd have. The temptation, if you're this man, is to say, look, I I didn't mean to bother you. 
I just really needed some help. I guess you're not who I thought you were. And then leave. That's what an American would do, right? Because that's what we do at churches all the time. Look, I really thought this church was going to be perfect and everything I needed it to be. Clearly, it's not going to be that. I, I guess I'll just move on, right? We do this not with church, we do relationships. We do it with, with a little bit of everything. What does this guy do? All that may be true, Jesus, but my boy's sick. I can't speak for these guys, but my boy is sick. And something's got to be done about my boy. And I've heard you're the only hope that we have. You can, you can be as critical of me as you want, but my boy is sick. I got to save my boy, and I need you to do it. One of the things in reading the, the Gospels is how often Jesus encourages persistence in prayer. And I'm guilty of this as much as any other American evangelical, is we pray once or twice before we go to bed and fall asleep, and we think all of our problems should be solved. And if it's not, well, then I guess God doesn't love me like he does everyone else. Two examples here, both are in the Gospel of Luke. One is a parable about the persistent widow. You remember she's seeking justice? You remember what she does? She keeps knocking on his door at night, right? <laughs> hey, judge, it's me again. Call the cops. And when I get out, I'll come knocking on your door again, right? We, we can do this, this dance all day long, right? Just give me what it is that I need, right? There's another story about, about a man who, who needs some bread, right? He, he, he didn't know his friend was going to come over. So he goes to the neighbor's house. He says, look... Just give me some bread and I won't hold your family hostage or something like that, right? There's the persistence in the prayer. Another example of this in the narrative is the prophetess Anna. You remember that she was advanced in years, it says, lived with her, her husband for seven years, um, and then she has been a widow ever since for 84 years. And she came regularly fasting and prayer night and day. And after over 80 years, God answered her prayer. Now, most of us aren't willing to do 80 prayers, let alone 80 years worth of prayers. Oftentimes we just give up. And I will confess, we, we McDonald's are very much guilty of this. Uh, whenever we were little, mom would fix this big old dinner. And, and then she would fix a lot of our plates, right? Because kids are messy. If you don't believe that, I'd like to introduce to you one of my children who can't seem to find their plate. I just don't understand why that is so hard. You could even take the bowl and you could put it on your plate. And that would be a better way of getting on your plate than what this child of mine is doing. So much like, like their mother. But so, so mom would fix our plates. And then by the time she would fix her plate, sit down to eat, dad has already had three helpings and dessert. And so he's sitting over, letting his belly breathe. You know what I'm talking about. And, and so he's sitting over like, oh, mama, that was good. And mom's like, I haven't even picked up a fork yet. And you're done. Don't put food in front of me. If you don't want me, go ahead and eat, right? So too, when, whenever you park a car, right? And there's a McDonald's in the car. I'm going to let you know what's going to happen. The second it is parked, if not sooner, the door is open, we're out of the door, Right? The second, what we're not going to do is put on makeup. What we're not going to do is check to see if someone texts back. No, it's time to get out of the car. Wasn't long ago, uh, mom, dad, and I were up in northern Kentucky, and uh, um, we parked. And by the time mom and I get out of the car, dad, we we're going to a restaurant. Dad was inside the restaurant. He was inside, just in a hurry. And they've gotten the age where they eat at an hour that no one else eats. You know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, it's like four o'clock and it's supper. Like, 
We just barely finished lunch, right? Am I going to have to eat a snack before I go to bed and then feel guilty, you know, about it, right? And so, like, there's not going to be a line. There's plenty of seating. He's, he's just taken off, right? We, we are not the most patient people. But faith and patience very much are a married pair. You cannot have one without the other. And that is a trait the average Christian does not have. Notice quickly, thirdly, the obedience of faith. Verses 50 to 52, here's a man who's traveled dozens of miles away from home for a chance to meet a peasant rabbi who he believes can heal his son. His request is that Jesus return to his home and heal his boy, right? So this is what Jesus says. Uh, Verse 50, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. It's a bit anticlimactic, right? We're waiting for Jesus to travel the 25 miles, do something fantastical, and voila, the boy gets up and uh, square dances or something like that, right? That's not what it is. Jesus looks at him like, man, this man, he's not going to give up, is he? All right, go home. You win. That's, that's a terrible story, right? That is a terrible story. And that's exactly what it is that we have here. Now, I suspect you and I would have a hard time reacting the way this man reacts, right? Like what I would say is, Jesus, thank you so much for healing my son. I really appreciate it. But if you don't mind, I'd like for you to come with me back home just until we verify that he's been healed, right? Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? It's why you keep the receipt on everything you buy, right? Right? Some of you make a sport out of returns. I'm not saying my wife is one of those, but, but she has buyer's bulimia. She, she buys things and <laughs> just takes her right back, right? And, and like, like recently, we had to return some to Amazon. I'm like, I'm not doing that. Like, you have like the inside game. She shouldn't be getting Kohl's cash for that. We should have just kept it from Amazon, even though it didn't fit. It was just Kohl's cash. Um, but this man is, he, he trusts Jesus. In fact, recently, I was in eastern Kentucky, and I made a wrong turn. And I knew I was near my destination, so, so I called the institution I was going to. And I remember that she said, oh, yeah, yeah, you, you turn too soon. Just follow that road. You'll go up a hill, down a hill, you know, you're right there for the mountain. And, and you're going to make a right. Turn that right, you'll hear in a mile. I said, okay, can I keep you on the phone? <laughs> you know, we don't have to talk about anything significant. I just, if I make another wrong turn or before I make any turn, I just want to verify with you because you know where you're at, right? And I just listened to her, would have found it just fine. But I needed that verification. Jesus assures him his child lives. And notice the text, the man believed the word. Something simple yet beautiful about that. Belief is more than intellectual knowledge. It is obedience. Christians don't question the Lord's wisdom. We struggle with obeying the Lord's will. We know what the Lord expects of us as spouses, parents, children, teenagers, employees, members. It's the obedience part that we really struggle with. So every day we stand before the tree of knowledge and the hiss of the servant rings in our ears. Will we choose the way of faith? Will we choose the way of sin? This man chooses the way of faith. Jesus, if you say he's healed, then it is done. And then finally, the the expression of faith. There in verse 53, it says, uh, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. Can I just add a little footnote here? Uh, I'm doing this at the Capitol where we're doing the, the Logos Life Light Lamb through John. We've talked about it before. 
Um, the seventh hour reference is significant. That's one o'clock in the afternoon, right at the brightest part of the day. Uh, those little moments in John are significant. We, we won't chase that rabbit. One of my favorite scenes, though, I, I did uh, Sid the Sloth this morning. You're welcome. It's a great movie. Uh, I don't know any spiritual truth about it, but it is just a movie that my wife likes the scrat, the squirrel. I could do without that, but, but everything else is just fantastic. Um, but another great movie is the Jim Carrey Grinch movie, you know? And the best scene, I think I've quoted this before, is he's been invited by Cindy Lou Who, and he's trying to come up with an excuse not to go, you're guilty of this, let's be honest. I think I've, I've confessed this before. I, I was involved in a small group before we came here. It really was just a sustaining small group, really God's blessing. I didn't want to go, but when I was invited, I scratched my head trying to think of an excuse why I couldn't go. I couldn't think of one, so I agreed to go, right? <laughs> I mean, you're guilty of the same thing. Let's, let's be honest. But the Grinch trying to get out, right? You remember the scene? The nerve of those who's invited me down there on such short nervous notice. Even if I wanted to go, my schedule simply wouldn't allow it. One o'clock, wallow in self-pity. 4.30, that's three and a half hours, by the way, of wallow in self-pity. Uh, we call those millennials now, actually, <laughs> so... 4.30, stare into the abyss. That's Generation Z. 5 o'clock, solve world hunger. Tell no one's my favorite. 5.30, jazz or I don't know what that means, but I, I'm sure Jim Carrey does that in everyone's movies. 6.30, dinner with me. I can't cancel that again. 7 o'clock, wrestle with my self-loathing. I'm booked. Well, if I bump the loathing to nine, I could still be done in time to lay in bed and stare at the ceiling and sleep, slip slowly in the madness. But what would I wear? <laughs> love that. And if you don't think that's funny, then, then you need Jesus in your life. You just need him. But I love the part about solve world hunger, tell no one, right? I mean, it's just, it's just absolute madness. It, it's just, just madness. But we do the same thing with the gospel, don't we? Because in one sense, we, we have solved the world's hunger. And too often, we just don't want to tell anyone. Notice what the man does, the pattern of the father here. In verse 53, he knew that his son had been healed. And then in verse 53, he believed his son had been healed. And finally, in verse 53, he shared his son had been healed. Throughout Scripture, those who encounter Jesus with faith share Jesus with boldness. Two great examples of this. The shepherds in Luke 2, they see Jesus, they go around and tell everybody. The woman at the well, we'll come back to her in John chapter 4. Let me tell you about a man who knew everything about me. He gave me living water. Those who encounter Jesus with faith will share him with boldness. In Nottingham, England in 1792, the year Kentucky was founded, incidentally, a group of Baptists met at their local, what we would call association. They really call it that, but for our purposes, it'll work. There, William Carey preached his most famous sermon known as the Deathless Sermon. I'd actually, I think you could read some of it today. The most famous line is where he challenged the church to expect great things from God, attempt great things from God. After the, the, the message and, and the meeting and all that, this is a big business meeting, the, the sermon was a call to fulfill the Great Commission. For, for, for centuries, Christians had believed the Great Commission was limited only to the apostles. It wasn't applicable to modern Christians. Carrie came to argue the opposite. He said that that command from Jesus applies to us even today. Now, we take that for granted. 
But as the insights of Carrie and his deathless servant actually sort of brought these issues to light uh, and for Baptists, this is really the, the birth of the, of, of the missions movement among Baptists. Carrie isn't the first. as actually an African-American man who was the first. That's a story of itself. Maybe we'll share another time. But typical of Baptists, they heard a sermon, didn't do anything. They closed out in prayer, right? And, and everyone's ready to go home for their fried chicken. It was, or uh, not go home. It was in the back of the fellowship hall, of course. William Carey grabbed Andrew Fuller before they closed. Andrew Fuller's an influential theologian, still is, frankly. He grabbed him and says, Sir, is there nothing going to be done again? The heathens need to hear the gospel. And here we are. Know what it is the Lord expects of us, and yet we're not going to do anything about it. Out of that simple question, came the first mission movement of what we would call a local association. Shortly thereafter, William Carey and his wife were on a boat to India. And you can still worship at William Carey Baptist Church today. Simple inquiry. Is there nothing again going to be done, sir? Remember that in the Gospels, the miracles of Jesus are there not so that we can see Jesus as a humanitarian, right? That's how we often interpret it. Jesus loved the poor, he loved the sick and the dying and all that. And all that's true. That's not why they're in the Gospels. They are there to tell us something about Jesus and his message of the Gospel. This is made explicitly clear by John. And the key word is again, sign. You can go back up there to, to verse 46. This is the second sign that Jesus performs. Now, notice, we, or we are to ask, what is this pointing us to? And the answer goes back to Cana there in verse 46. The connection here goes all the way back to the water and the wine. What are we to see here? Essentially, what Jesus did in chapter 2, turning water into wine, is essentially the same miracle he does here in Cana in healing the dying boy. Same miracle. Same miracle. Think about it. He turns water to wine. He wrestles life from death. It is the miracle of a created redeemer. Is the miracle of grace. Now, now you have chapter 2, water and wine. Chapter 4, the, the, the royal official's son. And right here in the middle, you have two narratives. What are those two stories? The first is of a religious elite man by the name of Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus and he says, you know, we hear you're, you're a good teacher. Help us understand what is it that you're teaching. And he says, you, you've got to be born again. Born again. And what happens in John is they confuse the, the spiritual with the physical. Jesus means spiritually born again. He hears, well, I can go back to my mother's womb. No one can. A, a newborn baby can't go back in their mother's womb. Right? He says, no, 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 you got you, you to be born again. He who is born of spirit must be born again. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Right? And then we, we meet a woman in John chapter 4. So we have a male, uh, a religious elite. We have a female who is Samaritan and is living in a cycle of sin, right? Two very opposite people. And her issue is uh, she needs water. 
She needs water. And so she comes to the well. It's hot in the day. Jesus is thirsty. His, his feet are sore. And, and he says, I'd like a drink. You know, what we all, she says, right? And remember, Jesus says, if, if you drink of the water I give you, you'll never thirst again. Never thirst again. We have that encounter, and then it ends right here in chapter 4 that we, we just read. Jesus arresting life from death. Notice the, the connection. With Nicodemus, the emphasis is on life. Much like here, the emphasis is on life. Jesus gives life. With the turn of water into wine, the issue is when Jesus comes, everyone has plenty. No one is thirsty and is the best of the best. And then what do we meet? We meet a woman who's thirsty. She finds her feel in Jesus. You see how the story is written? We have two miracles telling the same exact story, and right in the middle are two more stories saying, see, it's not just about how powerful Jesus is. It's about what the gospel does for people like you and me. He turned water into wine, life from death. He is new birth. He is new wine. Therefore, he, he is emphasizing, John is, he who is thirsty, let him come. And you will find more than mere water. In fact, even he who is on the brink of death, let him come. For what he will find is not mere life, but eternal life. And what is the key? The key is the humility of faith, the persistence of faith, the obedience of faith, and the expression of faith. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would be so kind as to